Medical rewrites, medical rewrites, medical. Hello and welcome to Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence-based medicine. I am Megan Jeffries. Today the rewrite is for Trainwreck. The deep dive is about drug-drug interactions between alcohol and antibiotics. This episode does not contain any spoilers, so no worries, but does include a movie clip that discusses sex. If this is distressing, this might be an episode to skip. All right, let's talk Trainwreck data. It was released in 2015 at a budget of $35 million and brought in $140 million, so pretty successful broad comedy. IMDb gives it 6.2 points out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes, the critics scored it 84%, and the audience, shame on you, the audience only gave it a 66%. Mostly critics have to do with the fact that it is predictable, but it is a broad comedy, so we love the predictableness of this. And there are definitely some nuances here that make it different from normal comedy. I am a, a thumbs up on this one. It's currently streaming on Max, so anyone needs a movie to rewatch during the holiday season, I give this a positive. In the clip that you're going to listen to that needs the rewrite, you're going to hear four voices in order to acclimate yourself to who is talking. The first conversation is between Amy, who's played by Amy Schumer, and Nikki, who's played by Vanessa Bayer. They're writers at a men's magazine where Amy has been assigned to write an article about a surgeon who operates on the top athletes. Aaron is the surgeon and is played by Bill Hader. He is also best friends with LeBron James. They legitimately have pretty good on-screen chemistry. He's clearly not a normal actor, but LeBron carries his own here. LeBron and Aaron are big fans of love and romance, and Amy and Nikki are more casual about relationships where sex is the main focus and not a deep intimacy with a partner. So again, Amy's interviewing Aaron and gets some bad news about her dad's health during the interview. Aaron gets to be the hero and he calms her down while she's freaking out. He then asks her to dinner. Dinner goes well. Amy and Aaron get in the Uber and Amy tells the driver that they're only going to need one stop and one address. Aaron is sort of floored in this scene with her forwardness but he's excited for the adventure and he's here for it. Amy allocates approximately two and a half seconds to foreplay before she dives into the main event. After the main event, Aaron convinces Amy to spend the night, which is against her sort of standard rules. And then the next day, Amy and Nikki are debriefing about the date. I slept at the doctor's place last night. Oh my God, because you were like blackout drunk? No, that's the thing. I, I was dead sober. I had like two drinks, three max. Four now that I'm tallying, but it was like okay, I was so sober. So you barely drank because you're on antibiotics or something? No, I spent the night on purpose. I don't understand. I don't understand. When you think about the sex, are you just kind of like, no? I'm like, so you're like, no, that's not what I'm doing. You're, oh my god. He's calling. Why would he call? You guys just had sex. It's probably a mistake. It's, yeah. it's a mistake. He's, he's butt-dialing you. Hello? Oh, hey there. It's, it's Aaron. Oh, uh, this is Amy. I think you butt-dialed me. No, no, I, I, I dialed you with my fingers. What's she saying? What's she saying? Shh. He called me on purpose. Hang up. He's obviously, like, sick or something. So he's do um, yeah, what's up? I was just calling to say I had a really good time last night. I was wondering if you wanted to um, hang out again. Will you say that again, please? I was wondering if I could see you again. You know what? I'm gonna call the police. Hold on, hold on. Uh, yeah, I'll just talk to you about it tomorrow at the interview, okay? Oh, yes. 
She said yes. All right, all right, I'll talk to you then. Oh, man. Huh? That, that's pretty cool, man. I, I didn't get to hear the whole conversation, but we're gonna, we're gonna talk, uh, we're gonna talk about when we see each other tomorrow. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah, she's got a sexy that's voice. Great. Did you guys make love? Yeah. Oh! Woo! My boy got intimate. Yes. Sexual intercourse. Woo! Just announce it to everybody. So in the scene, Nikki guesses that the reason Amy barely drank, in quotes, during the date was because she was antibiotics. It's such a small part of the movie, making this an unlikely choice for a full episode, but there are multiple reasons behind why this movie is making the cut. One, there's an excellent systematic review by Carrie Morganahan, published in Antimicrobial Agents and Chemotherapy in 2020. This article is going to serve as the backbone for this episode. It's titled Fact Versus Fiction, a review of the evidence behind alcohol and antibiotic interactions. Number two, I get to talk about cephalosporin side chains, which I have allocated approximately a decade of research to. And then number three, I get to talk about lanasal toxicities, which is another favorite topic of mine. And four, after this episode, you'll be better equipped to field all the questions that you're inevitably going to get at holiday parties. Interactions that mimic Cecily Strong on Weekend Update when she plays girl you wish you hadn't started a conversation with. So this is the scenario is someone at a party finds out you're a pharmacist. They say they just started taking metronidazole because they have a smidge of trick and that there's an alcohol warning label on the pill bottle. And is it, you know, like for real or can they have a fourth jug of eggnog? To be fair to smidge of trick, there's a lot of variability between pharmacy policies and procedures in terms of what antibiotics get alcohol warning labels. The antimicrobials in which there's agreement between Walgreens, Rite Aid, and CVS are metronidazole, tenizidol, ketoconazole. That's it. The systematic review demonstrates that these pharmacies should update their policies and procedures and get on board with real data. The real antibiotic in alcohol-drug-drug interactions, as determined by the authors, are erythromycin. One study showed that IV erythromycin increased the AUC of alcohol when administered together, but the chance of a person really being on IV erythromycin and alcohol at the same time feels incredibly rare. There was another study that looked at PK of oral erythromycin and that demonstrated a lower AUC of the erythromycin. They have no idea what the mechanism is. More importantly, the much more common macrolide azith does not have any PK changes when combined with alcohol. The author's final recommendations are that alcohol should be avoided with erythromycin due to potential for delayed onset of action, decreased efficacy, and risk of toxicity. I think this is a very generous warning. Just again, the PK changes are slight enough to where the clinical implications are probably minimal. And again, IV erythromycin is so incredibly rare. So I don't think you need a warning on a PO label. Drug two, doxycycline. In a small study of humans, the ingestion of wine or whiskey did not affect the PK of doxycycline. This is great news. But a study in rats compared the cure rates of brucella interaction between rats fed high alcohol diet to rats that were fed a normal diet. Both groups were given doxycycline plus rifampin. The alcohol-fed rats had significantly lower cure rates. Their cure rate was 65% versus 100% in the normally fed rats. The authors conclude that alcohol diminished the efficacy of doxy and or rifampin. This feels overly reductive and doesn't take into account that poor nutritional state of the rats could also have a negative effect on their immune system and increase their treatment failures. The authors also don't account for the increased metabolism and clearance of doxycycline when used concurrently with rifampin. 
For me personally, the doxy rift drug drug interaction is underappreciated. Even though in most brucellosis infections, the combination of doxy and rift performs worse than the other treatment combinations it's compared to. There isn't any data to indicate that a dose increase of doxy to, for instance, 300 twice daily makes a difference in treatment outcomes, but that's my current recommendation when this combination is needed for brucellosis infections. Regardless of confounders in the RAT study, there's a small study that included six people who had long-term alcohol consumption and six people who did not consume alcohol. Researchers compared the half-life of tetracycline and doxycycline between these two groups and found that tetracycline half-life was not affected, but doxycycline half-life decreased from 14 to 10 hours. Considering that doxycycline is almost always administered twice daily in acute infections, I don't think the shortened half-life here is likely to matter clinically. However, the author's final recommendations are that for people who are chronic consumers of alcohol, they may require twice daily dosing of doxycycline, which is already a no-brainer. Number three, real, real drug interactions between alcohol and antibiotics are linazolid and tadazolid. And this is a super interesting one. It's all about tyramine. So tyramine is a monamine, just like dopamine, epinephrine, norepi, and serotonin, all of which have sympathomimetic activity. The natural life cycle of monoamines is to be released into the neural synapse. Out into the wild, these monoamines are destroyed by monoamine oxidase, also known as MAO, and methyltransferase, which is abbreviated as CUMT. Linazolid and tadazolid interrupt this normal lifespan on monoamines because they are both reversible MAOI inhibitors. So they inhibit the destruction of the monoamines. When tyramine is present in the synapse, it increases sympathomimetic activity as it is sympathomimetic, and it increases the amount of substrate that MAO and CMT have to metabolize. It's a double whammy. Unique to tyramine compared to the other monoamines is that it's found in a lot of fermented foods. This is because the metabolism of fermenting microorganisms, the byproduct of microorganism metabolism, are often biogenic amines. Tyramine is one of those. Foods with the highest concentrations of tyramine in a mig per kg basis are fermented cheese, especially gouda, feta, roquefort, and parmesan, fermented fish and fish products, think fish sauce, cured herring, mackerel, shrimp, sardines, again, all cured, not fresh. And then other fermented foods, miso, soy sauce, soybeans, tofu, etc. All of those can have increased amounts of tyramine in it because of the microorganism metabolism present. Data about tyramine concentrations in alcohol are difficult to generalize. It's also difficult to generalize tyramine concentrations in food, to be fair, because it's based on how long the fermentation takes place, the duration, the ingredients, and the microorganisms present. For instance, wine made from grapes, as opposed to other fruits, are higher in concentration. Pale lagers, beers, are higher in concentrations of tyramine than non-lager beers. There was a recent study analyzing new methodology for detecting monoamines and alcohol, and they tried to quantify this in three different wine varieties and multiple different lager varieties. And the ranges are anywhere from zero to several thousands. The authors reported the concentrations in micrograms per decimeter cubed, which means nothing to me. In converting it to units that make sense, the alcohols with the highest tyramine concentration ranged from one milligram per liter to 17 milligrams per liter, and those were the loggers. The package insert for linazolid says to limit tyramine to under 100 milligrams per day. This recommendation is backed by a 2001 study in which people taking linazolid 
and fed increasing doses of tyramine to assess the changes in heart rate and systolic blood pressure. There's definitely a linear relationship between tyramine dose and systolic blood pressure, and nine of 10 patients had an increase of 30 in their systolic with a dose of 100 milligrams of tyramine. That was their trigger, a systolic of a change in 30, and there was a placebo group for control here as well, but they looked at a systolic change in 30 and found that nine of 10 patients met that threshold at a dose of 100 milligrams of tyramine. Of note, there were two patients that had a relatively large increase in their systolic blood pressure with only 40 milligram dose of tyramine. So if you're adhering to the 100 milligram limit, this would mean a maximum of 10 pints of high tyramine lager per day, which feels quite reasonable in terms of limits to put on a person. On the bright side, tadezolid does not bind to MAOA or MAOB nearly as well as linazolid. This means that the interruption of normal MAO activity is not as significant with tadezolid that it is with linazolid. In order to elicit a 30 millimeter per mercury increase in systolic blood pressure, patients need to take 325 milligrams of tyramine, so a more than threefold increase, which makes sense when you look at the binding affinity for MAOA and MAOB. It is on a magnitude of somewhere between three and seven less binding potential than linazolid has, meaning you would need far less tyramine to elicit the same clinical response. This is on the package insert. It is not published data on that 325 milligram limit. The author's final recommendations, again, in the backbone fact versus fiction study, they say that patients with high blood pressure should take caution to avoid excessive consumption of alcoholic beverages high in tyramine, which, again, it's just difficult to determine which alcohol is high in tyramine. When in doubt, avoid drinking 10 pints of pale lager per day. I think that's a good take-home lesson for all of us. Fourth group of meds that the authors determined to have an interaction was the cephalosporins. It feels like there are millions of cephalosporins and not all of them have published data about their interaction with alcohol, but there is data in rats that demonstrates acute but not chronic alcohol exposure, increased the biliary excretion of cephadroxyl, and decreased urinary excretion and absorption of cephalexin, are two hardcore first-gen ceps. It is hard to tell if either of these PK changes are clinically relevant, however, so not really sure what to do with this particular nugget of data. The biggie with cephalosporins is actually the risk of disulfiram reactions. It's also underappreciated here in the U.S. because the cephalosporins responsible for most disulfiram reactions are not used here, but are used more commonly internationally. The mechanism believed to be responsible for the disulfiram reaction is the R2 side chain. Many of us have talked about R1 side chains in terms of that being responsible for the cross-reactivity between cephalosporins and penicillins, but today it's all about the opposite on the cephalosporin structure, which is the R2 side chain. It comes off the third carbon directly opposite of where the R1 gets attached on the beta-lactam structure. Authors have hypothesized that the cephalosporin side chain is thought to mimic or be interpreted as disulfiram in some patients. The name of the side structure is methylthiodioxidtriazine, or MTDT, or methyltriotetrazole, or MTT. You can listen to the episode 28 days for more details about the mechanism between disulfiram and alcohol, but we're not going to repeat that here. The cephalosporins with the MTT side chain are cephotitan, cephaparazone, cephamandol, and two other cephalosporins I've never heard of before, which are 
latamoxef, and cefaminoxine. Of note, ceftriaxone has the MDTD side chain, and it was responsible for 25% of the cephalosporin-induced disulfiram reactions in a retrospective study out of Beijing. The MTT side chain is also thought to be responsible for the anticoag drug-drug interactions with cephalosporins. So that's an interesting take-home. The final recommendation from the authors is to avoid alcohol with cefamandol, cefametazole, cefaparazone, cefotetan, and ceftriaxone. Here in the U.S., it would be cefotetan and ceftriaxone would be something we would think about. But again, these are IV cephalosporins. I suppose it's possible that someone is going to be drinking in the hospital while they are administered IV ceftriaxone or may come into the ED with ethanol on board or come into the hospital and have ethanol in their system. And we might think about using cefotetan or ceftriaxone in those patients, at least monitor for disulfiram reactions. Now, that's it. That's the conclusion of the authors in terms of what they included in antibiotics that have a real drug-drug interaction with alcohol. Now, I suspect many of you are currently clutching your pearls thinking there has been a great injustice. And when is she going to talk about metronidazole? And here's the spot. Package insert for metronidazole recommends against the use of alcohol within 48 hours due to the risk of disulfiram reaction. This recommendation is based on old data from 1964, which stated that metronidazole may be effective for alcoholism based on 53 patients who had reduced desires to drink and reported disulfiram-like reactions. This sounds like a marketing spiel because subsequent controlled studies have never replicated these findings. There's also old in vitro studies that suggest that metronidazole or its metabolites inhibited liver alcohol dehydrogenase. Again, see 28 Days, the movie script to talk more about that. A more recent rat study found that metronidazole and alcohol increased intracolonic acetaldehyde levels but did not alter blood levels. In a double-blind placebo-controlled study of 12 humans, they were given 200 milligrams of oral metronidazole three times a day for five days prior to receipt of alcohol, and they gave it 0.4 mg per kilo for each participant. Researchers measured alcohol and acetaldehyde levels every 20 minutes for over four hours and found no difference in aldehyde dehydrogenase levels between metronidazole and the placebo groups. Additionally, none of the six that were in the metronidazole alcohol group had any sort of disulfiram reaction. Most recently, there was a case-controlled study published in 2023 of patients that were admitted to the hospital with detectable ethanol levels. In the process of care, some of these patients received metronidazole. Those were paired and matched with 18 other patients who also had alcohol levels on admit but did not receive metronidazole. They compared adverse reactions between these two groups. The only difference is that there was significantly less hypertension in the metronidazole group compared with the control group, so 16% less hypertension versus 61% of the people in the placebo group or the control group. There were no other significant differences in disulfiram-like reactions between the two groups. So again, super small study, 18 people matched in each group, but certainly not a guarantee that people that receive metronidazole with ethanol in their system are going to have any sort of adverse reactions. Again, back to our backbone paper, the author's final recommendation is data are controversial in terms of describing metronidazole alcohol. I would update that to say there's no high-quality data linking disulfiram reactions after receipt of metronidazole and alcohol. For the sake of being complete, the authors also recommend avoiding alcohol with ketoconazole, griseofluzin, isoniazid, and pyrazinamide. The rationale for avoiding it is that all these meds are known to be hepatotoxic, 
and we should be nice to our livers and only give them one toxin at a time for them to manage. Okay, in conclusion, here's our rewrite. Since there's no antibiotics that are actually contraindicated with alcohol, we need to replace this one script line. Options worth contemplating, I think, are opiates or benzos. Those are obvious candidates to not combine with alcohol. That's because when combined with alcohol, the risk of accidental overdose is quite high. Alcohol is involved in 20% of overdose deaths that include opiates and benzodiazepines. The cause of death is almost always respiratory depression. This is because alcohol, opiate, and benzos each suppress respiratory circuits in the brainstem through actions on different receptor systems. So quick pharmacology review. Opiates suppress respiratory rate through mu opiate receptors, benzodiazepines through GABA-A receptors, and alcohol through GABA-A and NDMA receptors. So you get a combo effect here and respiratory rate slows down. And then, of course, you know, the brain goes dark. Other options that come to mind are Z medications for insomnia. So this is Zolpidium or Zolpidium, Zalpion, and Esopiclone. These meds are also GABA agonists and benzodiazepine receptor agonists. In 2011, there was a retrospective study of the Illinois Poison Center that determined how commonly Zolpidium ingestion resulted in hospitalization. There were 692 cases that met inclusion criteria, and 67% of patients were seen in the ED, had to go to the ED. 17 of those patients were discharged home, so a tiny amount were discharged home. The majority of them, 44% of that group, required ICU admission, and 17% required medical floor admission, and then 16% were admitted to a psychiatric unit. Co-ingestion of alcohol was associated with ICU admission. So here's the final rewrite. I think we're just going to swap it with Ambien. One, it's well known, the audience will get it, and it really should be avoided with alcohol, unlike antibiotics. It's generic now, but maybe movie production can squeeze some cash out of Santa Fe for saying Ambien in the script. Win-win. As always, check out the show notes for references used in this episode. Feel free to blow the minds of other healthcare providers by telling them there's no real interaction between metronidazole and alcohol. If you think there's a movie that deserves a rewrite, click the link in the show notes and complete the form. This has been a podcast presentation by me, Megan Jeffries, production and editing by Ann Connolly. She's a national treasure, a music by Brandon Meeker. Thank you.